0: I recently read the story of a guy named Glenn Ford who's 64 years old and he was released from prison in Angola, Louisiana. Glenn Ford had spent 30 years on death row for the murderer of a jeweler, which now the district attorney says evidence does not warrant the conviction. He spent 30 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. TV news reporters, of course, were outside the jail on the day he was released. And as he walked up to one of them, he was asked uh, what the first thing he was going to do was now that he was free. And his answer was very simple. Go get something to eat. It's amazing what we miss when we're in chains, the simple things when we are locked up. Stories like these, of course, are, are not infrequent. We, we find that people are released because DNA evidence or some other kind of evidence comes up and, and it determines that the person who's paying the price, the person who's behind bars, the person who's been imprisoned, is actually not the guilty party. And I can't imagine having given three decades of my life to pay for a crime I didn't commit. Nor can I imagine the thrill of what it must be like to have been locked up that long and then to f- finally have the doors thrown open and to be able to walk out into a world where once I was limited and, and my opportunities and my choices were dictated to me, to now be able to walk out and have a world full of choices now ahead of me. As I thought about this man's plight, I thought about us as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the difference we're guilty. We're guilty, and we are in bondage to sin and guilt. But Jesus said that he came to set the captives free. What he did not mean was that his mission was to go around to all the prisons, knock the guards out, get the keys, and open the doors and let people go. He was trying to set a different kind of captive free. Those in bondage to sin and guilt. Those in bondage to a destination in hell. It is that kind of captive he came to set free. We've been pardoned, those of us who are believers, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Our chains are gone. We're set free. Jesus has given us a brand new start with a wide world of opportunities out there awaiting us. Now, I think we understand that we are saved from Sin. we are saved from guilt we're saved from hell but one of the things that i don't think that pastors and evangelists have done a very good job of is letting god's people know not just what they're saved from but what they're saved to and i'm not talking about heaven we are saved to that but what about this life on the earth As, as as believers as followers of jesus christ What does being saved, how does that impact our daily living? How does that impact our daily decisions? What is it that we are saved to in this life? Being a Christian, you see, is not simply a matter of escaping the clutches of Satan or avoiding the flames of hell. God saved us and set us free for himself and for his purposes. God saved us and set us free for himself and his purposes. And so... This morning, I would like our focus to be on what it is that we are saved to. And so here's the big thing. I'm going to give you the big thing, okay? i give you the big thing in case you go to sleep and you miss the rest of it. Here's the big thing. And the big thing is this. We're saved to serve others, to share the gospel, and to shine in the darkness. That's what we're saved to. And so let's begin to tick those off one at a time. We're saved to serve others in Galatians chapter 5 which is actually where I was in in our Bible study this morning at 9 Paul writes for you were called to be free brothers only do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh instead serve one another through love don't use the freedom this this freedom that Christ has given us. Don't use it in order to go out and indulge yourself, but instead use it to serve others. When we think about following Jesus, some of us are still kind of caught in that rule-following mode. And there are certainly things that we should do and shouldn't do because they either honor or dishonor God. Certainly, those things are true. But when you go back, it's interesting if if you go back and and I'm sure many of you have done this yourself, and you go back into the first five books of the Bible, and and as you're reading through them, you count the laws that are given there. Do you know how many there are? 613. Some of you who are reading through the Bible in a year, and you've gotten up to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you've probably said, is that all? Man, I thought I read a lot more than that. But 613 laws, that's a lot of laws to keep. If you had to think about that on a daily basis, it kind of drives you nuts. But it was even more interesting. You see, the religious leaders, they read the laws and they said, you know what, we don't trust the folks enough to know how to do that. We really don't. When we say to, that the Sabbath is, is a day of rest, we've got to define that for them so they know. So there's no, no doubt about what rest is and what rest isn't. And so an oral tradition began to grow up around these 613 laws. And when they finally put that oral tradition into writing called the Mishnah, there were 63 volumes. Kind of sounds like what our government does. It takes a law and then you've got all these regulations to follow the law. They wanted to leave no doubt in anyone's mind. Now, not only now would you have 613 laws, but now you have all the oral tradition to go along with it to tell you how to keep those laws. It was like trying to walk through a room full of cats without stepping on any of their tails. I mean, you're always being extra careful, always being fearful that you were going to mess up because there's just so much to think about and so much to do and so many laws and so many regulations. Just for example, what about on the Sabbath? What does it mean to rest on the Sabbath? Well, they had laws that said you can't pick up a chair on the Sabbath. You can't pick it up and you can't move it from one place to another on the Sabbath. But you can tip it over on two legs and pull it across the floor. Wow. Do you realize there were a certain number of steps that you could take on the Sabbath? You had to count your steps, and if you went over that by one, you are now in the category of work. So you can see that it would have been a burdensome thing to try to obey all these laws and the regulations that went along with the laws. And so what would happen is the Jewish leaders would go, wow, they're going to have a really hard time with this. So we need to go in and we need to pick out for people what are the top laws, you know, the big ones. And make sure we get those out to teach those so that they can at least get those right. And so that's why the religious leaders came up to Jesus and said, Master, which of the commandments are the most important? And that gave Jesus the opportunity to set the record straight for them and for us. When he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Wow. To go from volumes and volumes and volumes of regulation to two simple commands. Love God with all you've got and love your neighbor like you love yourself. Do that. And you'll take care of the law. Paul echoes something very similar in Romans 13 when he writes, Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now what's going on here? Obviously, as believers, there are things that we don't want to do. There are things that we want to avoid in our lives. But if we tried to live the way those people had to live, we would be so afraid even to get up and leave the house in the morning for fear of breaking some kind of law or regulation. And so... Jesus said, let your life be guided by this love that I'm going to put into you. We had a great question that came up in Bible study this morning about what does that love mean? What does it what does it look like? How do we define it? Because the world's got all kinds of definitions of love out there. So how, how do we define love? And, and, of course, we went straight to 1 Corinthians 13. You can write that in your reference. You can go look later. But if you want to know what the love that we're to have is to look like, go back to 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love and kind, and so on. And read those. And that gives us an idea of that's what it's going to mean for us to love other people, to respond in loving ways toward them. But we're not called to hide in a corner. In fact, what Jesus calls us to is to get out of the corner and get into people's lives, to serve other people based on love, to actively seek to meet their needs and even to place the needs of others in front of our own wants. We're called to get out of these comfortable church seats and to get into the world. We're called. We're called to meet people at the point of their need. And as best as we're able, as we're led by the Spirit, to meet that need and in doing so, open up an opportunity to plant the seeds of the gospel so that people might hear and respond because they see that the love of God has made a difference in our lives so that we treat them differently. And so basically, we're called to serve in the world. But that's not the limit of our serving. You see, we're also called to serve one another in the body of Christ. Do you know what makes me happy? Thank you for not shouting Krispy Kreme. Here's what makes me as a pastor happy. When I see you Loving one another. Responding to one another's needs. When I see you with a hand on someone's back, praying for them. When I see you kneeling to talk to a small child or escorting a family who's a guest with us, From the door back to where the child care is or to a classroom when I see you break away from your huddles of people that your your friends that you're talking to because you see someone over here who's standing by themselves and and you don't want to leave them there on their own and you you break away in order to go over and to engage them when I hear about those incidences where you come to the need of someone by stopping to help them change a tire on the road or going over and raking their leaves or mowing their grass or trimming their hedges. Those acts of kindness where you go the extra mile and you do more than you have to do and you're not looking for what is the bare minimum Christianity I can get away with, but instead... You're being motivated by love to serve other people and to give generously. That lights my bulb, folks. That lets me know that something good is going on in the life of Grace Fellowship. It's not about how many people we can pack in here on Sunday morning, although I'd be happy with an overflowed crowd. It's not about how many people we can shove into Bible studies and grace groups, although I wish we had to create more and more and more in order to meet the need. Those, to be honest, grow out of the life of a healthy church that is loving God and loving others. You got a church like that, people want to be a part of something like that. And people will be drawn to that because they can see that it's real. We are saved to serve. And when we do, we show the world what Jesus is like. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let your light shine so that people might more clearly see God. And so... We are first saved to serve others. Secondly, we are saved to share the gospel. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. You've probably in your lifetime had a number of significant events. And depending on where you are along that life timeline, some of you have had more significant events than others. But you can look back and there are memories that you have. The first time that you rode a bicycle without training wheels, that is a significant event in life. The freedom at not to be teased by your friends because you're the last one with training wheels. There's a freedom to that. Or, or what about when the braces were taken off? That was a big deal. That was a significant event in your life. Getting your driver's license. Getting your first ticket. Those two kind of go together. Graduating from high school. Showing up for your first day of college. Or that first job that you have. The day... You stood before a pastor or a magistrate and said, I do. Significant events. The doctor, midwife, placed that little baby in your arms for the first time. Significant event. And of course, that starts a whole chain reaction of significant events to follow. First steps, first tooth. Training wheels off their bicycle, their driver's license, their ticket, and on and on and on. And some of you have significant events now with grandchildren and even great-grandchildren. Life is full of significant events. But by far the most significant thing that has happened to any of you who are followers of Jesus Christ is that you were born again. Because it was in that that you went from being spiritually dead to eternally alive that is the most significant thing that can happen to anyone that is big with a capital b and the fact that you are saved is cause for celebration we've talked about that that the 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 fact that you can put your head on the pillow at night and know that if you didn't wake up the next morning that you would wake up with god in heaven That is cause for celebration, that you have something that no man can take away, something that you cannot lose, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That you have been reconciled to God, not through any effort of your own, but you've been reconciled to God through the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross on your behalf. That is the most significant thing that could ever happen to you. And it is a cause for rejoicing. But you were not saved simply to enjoy the fruits of your salvation. You were saved to share the life-changing good news of Jesus with others. Who also need what you have found to be reconciled to God. You have been given the ministry and the message of reconciliation now you may think that sharing your faith that's a role that's reserved for the for the hired people you know the hired hands the pastors and the missionaries that's that's their job let them go out there and tell everybody but in reality you know better in reality you know that it's your mission too you are that hungry beggar who found food and you know that you have an obligation and a privilege of going out and telling those other hungry beggars where they can come and be satisfied too. You have been made alive and be given an eternal promise. And now you know men and women and teenagers and children who don't have that hope. And you have the privilege of sharing it with them. And I I, I don't want to lay a guilt trip on anybody, but we need to understand that if we don't do this, that we may have some folks who go to a Christless eternity and wonder why we didn't stand in the way. Why we didn't step in the gap. Why we didn't speak up. You go, but that's what we pay you for, Jimmy. That's your job. Let me be honest with you. If I spent 8, 10, 12 hours a day doing nothing but telling other people about Jesus, I'd have a hard time making a dent. And and I spend a lot of time just building bridges, just finding ways to connect with people to, to gain a hearing. You know people I don't know. You have relationships already established that I don't have. Those bridges are already there. Take advantage of that. You don't, have to do it. you don't have to be rude. We're told to, 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 to do this with gentleness and respect. And I think that for some of us, we get kind of scared because we think we have to do exactly what the Jehovah Witnesses are doing. No. Begin right where you are in your little Jerusalem with the people that you know, the people that you care about and who care about you, and look for opportunities to share the love of Christ with them in your actions. And in your words. This is what we read in 1 Peter chapter 3. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks for the reason, for the hope that is in you. However, do this with gentleness and respect. And so we're saved to serve others. And we're saved to share the gospel. And we're also saved to shine in the darkness. This is one of these neat verses. Or two Verses. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. We could stop right there, couldn't we? Wow, that is convicting. You know, when your wife asks you to take out the trash, when that friend asks you, hey, would you do me a favor? If you're going to do it, You do it without grumbling and complaining. Okay, we'll move on. So that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation. Among whom you shine like stars in the world. There's one translation puts it as stars in the universe. Folks, we live in a messed up world. Have you figured that out yet? If you don't believe me, just go home, turn on CNN, Fox News, any of those news stations, just sit there and watch it for 30 minutes. You will realize very quickly that we live in a messed up world. And the more that I watch the news, the more that is confirmed to me. And I want to share with you, in case you don't believe me and you need a little convincing, let me just share with you some recent news stories in brief. Police in Mexico's western state and I'm I'm probably not pronouncing this right, Uh, uh, Michoacan? Michoacan? Michoacan. See, somebody, thank you, Michoacan, detained an alleged member of the Knights Templar cartel who is suspected of, listen to this, kidnapping children to harvest their organs. This is a messed up world. A Church Hill, Tennessee woman is accused of, this is almost funny if it weren't sad. is accused of driving her car into a church on Sunday where she called her husband. And when he arrived, she stabbed him at the altar because he was worshiping the NASCAR race at Bristol. Then she got in the car and drove away. I mean... You think I was making that up? A South Carolina man was convicted for kidnapping, choking and shooting an 8-year-old child in front of his ex-wife and grandchildren. This one makes me sick. Two teenage girls, aged 17 and 15, were charged with assaulting a 16-year-old autistic boy. They stabbed him, kicked him in the groin, and forced him to perform lewd acts with an animal and made him walk across the frozen pond. And when the boy fell through the ice, the teens did not help him. And to make matters worse, they recorded the whole thing on their cell phones. Now, these are extreme examples, I know, of moral depravity. But they show just how corrupt the human heart can be. The world is dark, but you are called to be the light of the world. Your life should stand in stark contrast to the lives of those who do not know Jesus. Your words and your lifestyle should shout, Jesus makes a difference. We're told in 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Folks, if you want to make a difference in the world, then you must be different from the world. If you want to make a difference in the world, you must be different from the world. Your life must stand out in stark contrast. To the darkness in our society, your life needs to radiate passion and radiate love and radiate power as you're moved along by the Holy Spirit out of your comfort zone and into the world. So, how is your life different from that of your unchurched co workers, fellow students, friends, neighbors, family members? Do they honestly see in you that you are different? That your life stands out in stark contrast with the darkness of the world? Listen, let me just give you some simple encouragement. Be the person who stops to help someone in need. Be the person who holds the door open for that elderly couple. Be the person who runs to get their umbrella when they see a A a young mother struggling to get her children out of the car in the pouring rain. Be the person who picks up the tab for the servicemen or women who sit at the next table. Be the person who trims the hedges or mows the grass or rakes the leaves that disabled neighbor be the person who always comes into the room with a smile and an encouraging word be the person who takes the time to go read with an elementary school child be the person who who get who pulls himself out of a worship service like this in order to go and to sit with children and to teach them the stories of Jesus be the person whose life stands out in stark contrast with the world and then give credit to Jesus You're not not in it to say, hey, look at me. You're in it to say, hey, look at Jesus. Because this is a difference that Jesus has made in my life. You're not just saved from hell. You are saved to a new life. To live as a kingdom person. You're saved to serve others. You're saved to share the good news of jesus you're saved to shine in the darkness so serve share shine